The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Let's say the name Richard Spoor. You will know him as a human rights attorney. He's uh, based in White River in Upumalanga. He's uh, been fighting battles uh, in courtrooms for the last 25 years, um, particularly when it comes to workers' rights and safety in the mining industry. Um, he went to UCT. He has had a really colourful career in the world of, of law. But Richard Spur, you didn't always, you weren't always a lawyer. What was your first job? My first job was a human resources manager at Goldfields of South Africa, who mm-hmm. uh, sponsored my university studies. Um, it lasted a year. I've been a waiter. I've been a construction worker. I've, I've done a range of jobs before I settled down on law. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but law was clearly the goal. Um, was the time at Goldfields at that time, um, was it f- formative in terms of actually, I don't like the way in which these guys, the, the workers that I've got to um, be, be managing uh, on behalf of Goldfields are treated? Was there a trigger then? Was it something that was always in you? No, it was worse than that, Bruce. I should never have taken the job. Um, at the time, I was of a very hard left persuasion. Um, the company wasn't aware of it, so um, no credit to me. But I spend most of my time there as an informant for the, um, the, 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 the embryonic National Union of Mine Workers and Trade Unions. <laughs> so it was a bit of cloak and dagger stuff that was going on at the time. Um, and eventually they discovered this. I was found addressing a group of strikers at Ranfontaine Estates and encouraging the revolution. The security police reported me to my employer and I was dismissed. But the good news is um, my bursary obligations were scrapped. So um, I was very happy and then could move on um, into my law career. But but you are the first generation South African. Were you born here? Um, your parents were immigrants. Did you come with them or were you born here? I was born here. Um, okay. This is the only country I know. I'm not much of a travel person. I've done a little traveling, but... Um, thoroughly South African, very deeply rooted. This is my life. This is my family here. Um, where where did they come me. from? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to work out where, where your influences come from. Where where they grown up? Where they come from? What did they come and do here? They were they were children in the Netherlands during the German occupation, and uh-huh. um, you know, the early fifties. Um, they left Europe, which was in a deep depression, to come and find a future for themselves in South Africa. Um, so they're, they're that generation, they're the, the war generation, um, mm. you know, liberal working class people, um, with a strong antipathy towards fascism and a very strong memory of the horrors of the second world war. Um, and, and I think that was quite formative for me. You described yourself as a, a left-leaning individual, very left-leaning individual in those days. Where did that influence come from? Where did that sort of moral barometer come from? Because at that time, of course, there were a lot of British immigrants in South Africa, uh, people who'd come from a Labour-led um, um, Britain, for example, who were quite unionised and they came and worked um, at ISCOR and ESCOM and places like that. In those days, as engineers and others, um, were you kind of in that area of the world, the industrial sector of the East Rand, Van der Park, Sasselberg, that part of the world? Um, 
you know, I, I, I spent my formative years in an industrial town in the northern free state, Sasselberg. Aha. Um, but when I went to university, I um, fell in with some left people and there was a bit of a religious conversion, I suppose. It just kind of made sense to me, you know, influential people. Eddie Webster was a big influence and uh, the groups that he was working with. Uh, there was the Agency for Industrial Mission on the uh, West Rand that was organizing and teaching Marxism to workers. Uh, a friend of mine who's now a professor at UNIZUL, Paul Stewart, was extremely influential. Um, and a couple of other hardcore leftists inside the uh, trade union movement. So we were always outside the mainstream left. So I was never part of NUSAS. Uh, we always looked on kind of slightly suspiciously. I have the dubious distinction of having been ejected from the launch of the UDF um, as an agent provocateur. I was fired by the Catholic Church um, because they thought my teaching geography to matric students in uh, Guguletu was being provocative. Um, so it was a very hard left kind of start to things. Um, thankfully, I've sobered up a bit. Uh, the religious fervor has faded. Um, and I think I'm now just... Uh, you know, just somebody who's interested in concerned about treating people decently and fairly and, and, and principles like justice, I suppose, classic liberal stuff. Yeah, good old-fashioned values, good old-fashioned values. Because, I mean, in South Africa, there are plenty of abuses with which you need to deal. Some of them are historic, some of them are current. I mean, you come across astonishing stories, I'm sure, on a daily basis of people who have been, you know, treated incredibly badly. Yeah, there's no end to it. I mean, um, you know, I'm getting older and uh, it's overwhelming. You know, in the last few weeks, I mean, last two weeks, I'd say, so picked up a range of stuff. A new coal mine in uh, the Nkomazi area, massive 7,500 uh, hectares of open cast pit. Um, the minister has approved blasting within 70 metres of the local community. Um, pick that up. Uh, another case, a land restitution trust, a huge one, Lisbon Estates, 1,500 hectares bordering the Kruger Park and the Sabi Sands that has been sold by some corrupt trustees to a developer for a tiny fraction of the value. Former activist friend of mine, a guy who spent literally years um, in detention during the apartheid era, having a problem with his landlord and he can't afford a lawyer. Well, I help him out. Another friend, a senior journalist, um, his landlord has cut off the water to his property. Um, you know, and these are cases, it just pours in on a daily basis. And, you know, the problem a lot of the time is there's nowhere else for people to turn. The resources are limited. Um, so it's a case of Either you take it on and find a way to do it, or um, you say, sorry, I can't help, but I don't have anybody to refer you to either. So, um, yeah, it just, and at the same time, you know, we're putting together various class actions. There's a Jagersfontein matter. We're finalizing a class action against the coal mining industry for coal workers' pneumoconiosis. Um, we have something running against Toyota around taxis. Um, it now, is how I mean, so, so trouble finds trouble finds you then. <laughs> you don't go looking for trouble. Your yeah, your, your brand I'm equity as people come to you because they trust that you can help them, or they're desperate, and you may be the last person they come to, and they go, "Please help." Um, but they believe that you will. 
uh, because that's the brand that you've developed, the personal brand that you've developed uh, over over many years. When you say you pick up cases, I mean, a lot of this sounds like pro bono work and sort of favors for friends and um, doing stuff out of the goodness of your heart. How do you put bread on the table? Um, that remains a challenge. Uh, we rely a lot on, 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 on funding and a combination of funding from um, donors, you know, the environmental and community and some of the land work is funded by, by, by donors. And then some of the bigger litigation is funded by partnerships that we go enter into with um, foreign lawyers, uh, typically in the United Kingdom or in the United States. We enter into partnerships. They have the capital and resources to run it. Uh, we have the people on the ground and you know, between us, we do it. But a lot of that work, you know, where there is funded work and where there is come, income goes to fund, um, you know, the work where where there simply isn't money. And then you hope uh, for success at the end of the day. And at minimum, you hope you'll recover costs on you know, some other tariff or in terms of a settlement. And that then funds the next round of litigation. But it, um, <laughs> the firm has grown a lot the last years, the last 10 years. Um, I've been a one-man practice most of the time. Um, and um, it's really challenging to find the resources to do this kind of work, mm. particularly as we're distinguishable from uh, many of the more well-known not-for-profits like Lawyers for Human Rights and the Legal Resources Center and the Center for in, um, Environmental Rights and people like that who have solid donor funding. We're a private for-profit law firm, um, so the donor funding isn't as easy as it would have been if we were uh, a not-for-profit like the Legal Resources Center or CALS or any of those. So it is um, hugely challenging to 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 keep things going. What is the oldest case you've picked up? I mean, I'm sure there are many legacy cases of um, irresponsible mine owners, for example, and um, cases like you mentioned, the, the mine workers with um, breathing issues as a result of inhaling coal dust for years, for example, or asbestos cases or whatever the case might be. Uh, people are afflicted with the condition 30 years ago and suddenly it manifests in their old age. And um, these are there, there are lots of historical cases like that, no doubt. Yeah, well, the silicosis case, um, you know, the first claims date back to 1965. The, the new coal mining litigation that we've embarked on um, goes back even earlier than that. Um, so I think our oldest clients in that litigation, you know, started work on the mines in the 1950s. Um, there's a lot of this historical legacy stuff. Um, Difficult to litigate. I mean, with the coal mining industry, you know how that industry has transformed the last decade or two. So kind of establishing liability and tracking it back and trying to find the right parties and making the case that they should be held liable um, is difficult. But it goes back decades. Um, yeah, um, a lot of the stuff is, is, is a, long, a long legacy.
Uh, and then more recent cases. I mean, trouble never goes away. Mining industry, I saw a statement today celebrating the first fatality-free month ever, ever, in terms of um, actually, you know, health and safety. And mining in South Africa as, as a risky activity has improved in leaps and bounds since 1994, of course. New regulation, new legislation, much tougher um, um, consequences for uh, when miners are killed or injured on the job. It certainly has worked quite effectively. By no means though i'm sure is it perfect mm. no there there have been significant improvements and we hope that uh, litigation like the asbestos litigation we undertook in the early 2000s and um, the silicosis litigation has made employers more attentive to the risks but you know the challenges continue i mean we had the jagerfontein disaster in september last year that was a slime dam um, which uh, which burst and of course flooded an entire community yes, and, fl- and hit yes, the waterways yes. and did all sorts of terrible things yeah and you know that's a particularly interesting matter um, because the the party that we believe is uh, responsible uh, rainet investments is a Luxembourg-based company. Um, To the best of our knowledge, they don't have any assets left in South Africa. They sold the mine in April last year when it collapsed, and then it collapsed a few months later in September. Um, And now the challenge is how to hold them accountable, how to go after a Luxembourg-based company um, with complex structures, with trusts and managing partners and European systems of law so there we've kind of roped in an, an English law firm who specialises in those kinds of fields. And we're hoping to come knocking on, uh, you know, Johan Rupert, the major shareholders' doors in a, in a very little while and, and see if we can drag him to this party and, and, and hold him and his investors, his company, liable for this disaster, which destroyed uh, about 200 homes, uh, killed three people, and where the community has been left frankly, without any recourse and without any remedy. Um, and the, the, problem with these and sli- the problem with these Bloomin' Slimes dams is they're dotted about our landscapes. They're dotted all over the place. And as we see greater urbanization, we see more, more residential areas moving closer and closer to these Bloomin' things. So if you look around Joburg, yep. and the mine dumps are gone, but the Slimes dams full yep. of their, uh, the residue of mining. And in there, there's a lot of cyanide, for example, that was yep. used in the extraction of gold. All of those sort of chemicals and things are in these systems. And these things are a legacy issue from the past. But at some point, another one's going to pop. Yeah, another one's going to pop. Um, There, there are more of these. But the, the, uh, you know, government continues. Government and business continue to create these problems, like the new Kangwani anthracite mine in Kamati. I mean, the minister has authorized the establishment of a very large open cast mine that comes as close as seventy meters, the Mm. pit of the local community. Uh, densely populated um, urban areas, albeit in these, uh, you know, these rural areas, they're establishing a mine there. It's going to be a catastrophe. Um, you know, the standards for blasting in South Africa are predicated on American standards, which relate to different kind of housing structures. And we know from our experience here that the kind of activities they'll carry on there are going to devastate um, homes and schools and local infrastructure. We know that the dust and the noise um, is going to be a huge problem. 
But here you have a project that's being, I learn now, I've only recently kind of taken the instruction. It's been 10 years in the making, uh, begun by a company called Main Street 800 PTY Limited. Not sure who they are. Exactly. Uh, recently acquired by somebody else. Not sure who they are either. But here they are charging ahead with a mine um, in a densely populated area. If this was Santon, it wouldn't be happening. And you just know here comes a major battle. Large amounts of money have been committed. Very little thought has been given to it. The consultation is superficial. People are uninformed. And here comes trouble. What's going to happen? Well, it's going to be conflict, hardship, confusion. How it's going you, to be... Yeah. How do you pick the cases that you fight? Do You, you can't fight every fight. Um, you can't afford to do lots of cases that you may lose. Um, some cases, they have to be fought on a point of principle. So what is the, the sort of filter you use to say, this is one I'm prepared to take on? Well, um, it's, it's criteria number one, winnable cases. I mean, good cases. So uh, there's no point uh, devoting your energy and your life to fighting impossible cases. So you look for something that has merit. The second thing you do is you look for a case that's big, that's significant. So it's not just for the benefit of one or two, a handful of people. It benefits a lot of people. It's a big case. So you're looking for big cases with good merits against people with deep pockets. Um, those That's the kind of the golden rule. And, and invariably, those people that you're acting for are poor. Um, but that doesn't matter. Uh, they don't have money to pay you. But if the case is big enough, if the merits are strong enough, then even if your clients have absolutely nothing, it's, it's probably a case worth doing. And of course, you know, you want to feel that this is a, a morally correct case to do. This is something that must appeal to your heart. It must appeal to your, your gut. You must say, this is wrong. This needs to be dealt with. Um, How do you and find, then you find the energy yeah. to do it. How do you find navigating the legal system? I mean, we, we look at the criminal sector, for example, and we look at the delays on trials and the bail conditions and how bad guys get bailed and commit more crimes while they're out than when you know, than, than before they were arrested the first time. I mean, we, we know the criminal courts are a mess. When it comes to civil litigation like this, how do the courts cope? I think that's the one system that still functions relatively well. Um, there are outliers, you get some really poor judges and you get some really poor decisions. Um, but the appeal system works. Uh, we still have good quality judges. So the civil justice system remains a really important resource and guarantor of justice. Um, you know, I steer clear of government and dealing with government and negotiating with government and anything that depends on the goodwill and cooperation of government. Um, you know, I run a mile. Um, I have confidence in the civil justice system, and that's the one that we use. Um, and, 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 and typically, and I mean, how long is a piece of string? But the, the, the duration of cases, I mean, I'm sure uh, the, the bigger, the scarier, and the deeper the pockets of the person who is being litigated against, it can, they can afford to drag these things up for years and years and years. It, um, I mean, you know, the, the silicosis litigation dragged for more than 10 years. 
by which time most of the potential beneficiaries are dead anyway. And you kind of go, my goodness me, was it really (laughs) worth the trouble uh, on on that basis, you know? Yeah, well, you know, um, that's true. I mean, we're always too late. I mean, we're always after the fact. I mean, typically, anyway, Kangwani is perhaps a difference. We're always late. We're always 10 years too late. But you know, one of the things I look back on, and if I include the silicosis litigation, which, um, which uh, you know, obviously skews the numbers, you know, I'm quite pleased to be able to look back and say, well, over the over the last my career, I've probably recovered in the region of seven billion rand in compensation uh, for workers, uh, two billion rand for uh, various other other matters, the asbestos litigation. Um, litigation against chromines, litigation against Sassol, big industrial accidents that we've done, Thor chemicals and the like. Um, and then five billion for the silicosis litigation. So, you know, although we're late and although uh, it never undoes everything, I, I feel quite pleased with, with, with having achieved that. Richard Spur, we will leave it there. Thank you very, very much indeed. He's an activist, a human rights lawyer at Spur, at Spur, at Spur Incorporated Attorneys. Richard Spur.